Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 94, A Conversation with Christine Handy. I am really excited to bring you this episode. Christine is a author, a motivational speaker, a patient advocate, a mother, a model, and she is also a breast cancer survivor. She was diagnosed with a HER2 positive breast cancer in 2012, and this was after she had been through two major health issues in the preceding years, including a fairly recent arm injury that led to an undiagnosed infection and ultimately resulted in multiple surgeries and an arm fusion. And around this time this was all happening, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She speaks about the challenges that she faced at this time how she had to learn to trust the healthcare profession while she was still grieving everything that happened with her arm. Christine speaks of the power that help and meditation and faith had in her treatment, how she really had to let go of her pride, her ego, in order to be able to ask for that help, and what life has looked like after treatment and where she is now This episode is incredible. It is a testament to the power of the human spirit. And it is my honor to welcome Christine Handy to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude Podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Thank you so much for joining me, Christine. Oh, it's a pleasure to share my story. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start by you telling the listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, all of that. So who I am and what I do now is very different than prior to my diagnosis. I've done, I actually was diagnosed nine years ago on October 1st, 2012. I had the luxury of, or the misfortune of being able to see pink for an entire month. The first time I was, you know, when I was diagnosed, um, And since then, I have written a book about my diagnosis and my cancer journey. It's not a self-help book. It's a fictional depiction of my life. So I do that. I'm also getting my master's degree at Harvard currently because I had really bad chemo brain and I, my, my short-term memory was off. My long-term memory was off my, you know, I, I couldn't figure out what side of the street to drive on. And, you know, I really had a difficult time cognitively. And that has changed recently in the last year and a half since I started school. And I also am a speaker. I'm a motivational speaker. I try to help women and well, really all people. I speak in various audiences from prisoners to women of Wall Street. So I kind of do all over the map. I would be considered an expert in self-esteem. I also talk about breast cancer issues And I am a mother of two boys, and I also am a model. I've been a model for 40 years. That's quite a lot. And I'd love to talk about some of those issues that you mentioned. Now, backing up to your diagnosis, 
Can you talk a little bit about what your life was like before, you know, and then finding out and kind of how, how did your life change in those early days? Well, my, my story is a little bit different because I had two major illnesses prior to my breast cancer diagnosis. And six years prior, I had a colon resection, which, you know, was, was not a simple surgery to begin with, but the doctor made a mistake and I ended up losing a lot of blood during surgery and, and was cut wide open and had a long recovery and had multiple blood transfusions. And then, you know, the year prior to my cancer diagnosis, I had an infection in my arm that ultimately led to the grafting and fusion of my right arm. And so when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I had a cast on my right arm. My arm was just fused and my cast was on my arm from my fingertips to my shoulder. And so I was just trying to figure out how I was going to live my life, take care of my family, take care of myself with a fused right arm and cadaver bones that made up my new arm. And then I was diagnosed with breast cancer, an aggressive form of breast cancer. So that all happened within about six weeks of each other. And so, you know, talk about a multiplier effect. I didn't really know how to get through all that grief at the time. And so my biggest fears had come true and I was in a lot of despair. And I was also in a lot of physical pain from my arm fusion. And so it took me about three weeks of trying to trust a doctor, my, my new oncologist and breast surgeons, because the doctor that had supposedly helped me with my arm left an infection in my arm for seven months. And so I really didn't have any trust in the medical field at that point. That point. And, and so I was trying to grieve you know, my arm and I was trying to figure out how to trust the medical field again. And it took about three weeks for me to get comfortable back in the medical space and also get comfortable with fighting for my life at that point. Because, you know, right when I was diagnosed with cancer, I just thought, okay, well, I can't wait to die because between my arm and not be not knowing the outcome of whether I was going to get through breast cancer or not, I just was like, okay, well, let's take me out now. That's really hard. What did you do or say to yourself to get to that point where you were accepting of treatment and accepting of, you know, trusting the, the new medical professionals in, in your life? Well, here's, here's part of the responsibility of the medical field. When I walked into my oncologist, my oncologist knew partially my story. He knew what had happened to my arm. He'd, do, he'd done some kind of investigating and I don't know who told him, but somebody told him. And, and he really put me at ease. The minute I walked in, he goes, Hey, you're that girl with the arm. <laughs> and it was like, it was almost like immediately I trusted him mm-hmm. because, because one, he saw me and two, he saw me before I walked in that room. And so he was already building trust in me and I needed that. And I was very grateful for that. So it's, you know, I had a really lovely experience with my oncologist actually, which not a lot of people do. It's not just, you know, for, for the patient, it's, it's helpful from my perspective to get to know the doctor a little bit, to have some sort of human connection. And so often, because I've had other oncologists and I've had other many, many other doctors. And when it's just, a, when you're just a number or when you're just a label, it, it's, not as, it's not as easy to walk through that journey 
mm-hmm. separated from, you know, everybody else, but also with that person who's treating you. I agree. I think it, it only takes a little bit, but you have to connect to each other, right? On in a level that's a little bit outside of medicine, whether it's family or kids or hobbies or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Or just ask some personal questions, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you like to do? What, you know, who are you? Well, and I think it's hard to do, but I think the key, and what I try to do is seeing the person beyond their cancer diagnosis, right? right. Who, who were they before and who are they going to be? Right. Yeah. Good for you. We need more of that. Yeah. It's, you know, but I think that's kind of the goal of these, you know, of the conversations and the podcast is to really get a little bit more of that across. So after that, what did treatment look like? In both, so I, yeah. both, you know, what did, what did it entail, but also how, how did you cope with all of it? So I came in depleted, obviously I had cadaver bones in my right arm and I had a cadaver Achilles tendon. And so we had to postpone chemo for 30 days because if we had started Adrian Mycin, then it would have destroyed the grafts in my arm. And so to postpone chemo was obviously unsettling because you want to get rid of the cancer as quickly as possible. So we decided to do a lumpectomy to get rid of the lump, you know, the, the mass right off the bat, just because we were in this holding pattern. And so after we did that, I knew I had to get a mastectomy moving forward, but I was also so depleted because of the arm that they didn't want to do a mastectomy. And so they did a lumpectomy. And then when I was able to start treatment, I did 28 rounds, meaning I did four Adrian Myosin. Uh, I can't remember exactly the regimen, but it was 16 and then 12 Herceptin because mm-hmm. I was HER2 positive. Okay. And so, yeah, it was, it was brutal. And <laughs> how did I get through it? Well, I got through it with help from a lot of people who took care of not only me, but my children. Um, and I also got through it ultimately by faith because I ended up, I stopped meditating on the outcome. I stopped meditating on the suffering, the, the constant suffering. And I started to meditate on courage and faith and hope. And, and that got me through the darkest days because I didn't know what was going to happen. Nobody knew it was out of my control. But the more I was trying to control the outcome or each day, the less hopeful I was feeling. And so the more that I surrendered to it and just showed courage, not only for myself, but what I modeled to other people, the easier it became for me. I think that's a wonderful perspective. How do you ask for help? You know, I think this is something, and I know this is something many people struggle with. Any advice? Yeah. So for me, it was really, really hard because I was taught as a woman to be very independent and not ask for help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we, as women, we can multitask and do so many different things at once and to be out of commission with my right arm and then to be out of commission because of chemotherapy. I, I was struggling to figure out how to take care of my children and I wanted to take care of my children. And so it's this loss of control and to get rid of your pride and your ego and all the things, all those boulders that we build up, right. Of, being saying, Oh yeah, we're, we're strong enough. We can get through the enough to let that go. And to be, you know, just to be present in the moment of this is too tough for me to do it alone. That takes a loss of pride and ego. It takes courage to say that. Mm -hmm. And it takes, it takes getting rid of all that baggage that we carry about being these really tough, strong women. We need people. 
I think you, you, you're so, you're so right. And, you know, and I talk to people about this every day, but it's really, really hard to ask for help. But I think just hearing that you, ha- you know, you had no choice. I mean, you, you had to, um, and did people's reactions surprise you in terms of when you asked for help? You know, the funny thing about that, you're right. I had no choice, but even with no choice, it was still hard for me to ask, mm-hmm. but it got easier because the more I practice it, the more easier it became. And so people's reaction, to be honest with you, when, when I asked for help, my friends would say to me, it's a gift. It's such a privilege to help you. And I would say to them, well, this is like the third, you know, season of despair that you're going through with me. And they would say, it doesn't matter. Let's, if there's three more, it doesn't matter. We're not going to forsake you because it's a dark season. You know, we're going to be here for season after season with you, whatever it looks like. And I would listen to them and go, wow, they believe in me more than I believe in me. And so the longer my journey went on and the more they stood up for me and the more that they cheered me on, the more my self-esteem was nurtured and the more, the stronger I got. And then ultimately they said to me, okay, well, now that you're healthy, now it's your job. Mm-hmm. So that's why, I, that's why I share my story because it's my job to encourage other people. Listen, it's the greatest privilege that we can do is to make somebody feel less alone. I, just, I love that. And, you know, I think people, like you said, people are afraid of asking for help because they don't want to bother or inconvenience their friends. But that's what friendships and relationships relationships are all about, right? You, you give of each other to support the other person. Not just that, but serving, you know, showing up for people, it gives you joy. The person that's giving it, it gives you joy. And mm-hmm. so it's a two-way street, you know? Absolutely. After the kind of acute treatment was done, right? So the Herceptin was finished and the chemo was finished. Did your life change? Yes. You, know, you were done. You weren't going back and forth every other week to doctor's offices. What did things look like at that point? You know, it's such an interesting question because, you know, when you're going through long seasons of illness, like breast cancer can be, you have to build a home in that medical space. You have to figure out who the new person is in that home, right? Mm-hmm. You have to plant yourself in that. So you're rooted in something. And when I was done with treatment, I was like, wait a minute, I was that sick girl. Am I still the sick girl? And I had to redefine myself as the healthy girl, even though I had no hair, right? Because you still, I was still labeling myself the sick girl, even though I was feeling fine because my hair was either growing out or extremely short. And then I had to build a different home because I wasn't the person I was before I went through treatment. That person was gone. And the new home I built was kind of a combination of them, meaning I left left my pride, my ego at the door that the world that I'd built myself on prior to being diagnosed was, you know, was filled with materialism and and, and insecurity. And I let that all go. And I was rebuilding my foundation on faith. And so I was able to move past that stage of illness into a stage of wanting to help other people and wanting to serve. And so I think that I was different before diagnosis. I was different during my treatment and I was different after. And all good. You know, I liked who I was in all stages, but you really have to build different homes for yourself. And how did you kind of get more into that space of, of serving others? Well, it was easy for me. It was an easy choice for me because I had seen my friends and my family show up for me for trial after trial after trial. 
and it, and I learned from them so much and how, what a privilege it was. Listen, like before I was diagnosed with cancer, I had a friend who was losing her eyesight. And when she would ask me to go pick her up, I was like, oh, I have kids. I've got all these other things. I kind of was put out. And then all these people kept showing up for me. I was like, wait a minute. It would have been a privilege to help her. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, like my, that shift in perspective, it is a privilege to help people. Mm-hmm. And that's all I think about now. I'm not put out by helping other people. It's a gift. Did you start doing more speaking at that point? Yeah. So I published my book, which gave me a platform to speak. And, you know, because I was a model, I was in front of the camera for, you know, such a long time that it was easy for me to transition into speaking. And right after my diet, well, right after I published my book, I was hired by Fox radio news to be one of their breast cancer experts from the patient perspective, which I really loved because you hear a lot about the, the physician's perspective. But at that time, which was six, seven years ago, you didn't hear a lot about the patient's Mm -hmm. perspective. And so I think it was critical. So I loved doing that. And then my voice, you know, I, my voice got bigger. I got to do bigger commitments with speaking and, and I went on the board of a couple charities like eBeauty, which is a wig exchange program for women who are going through treatment. It's a free wig exchange program. And so I started to just serve in all these different directions. And I started to change the other things that used to fill my time. Like I wasn't going shopping anymore. I wasn't, you know, going to lunch with my friends. I was working on the board. I was getting ready for a speech. I was doing social media for, you know, trying to inspire women. And so my days got filled with other things. And so by the end of the day, I was serving all day. And that doesn't mean like I was, you know, serving out at a food kitchen, just every area of my life was of service. And that was that just kind of happened. It was kind of the, again, the multiplier effect, you know, we can choose which direction we're going in every single day. And I just, I chose, you know, to turn off all the other music and other things that were distractions. I want to focus on serving. Did it ever feel, you know, as the patient voice, right. And the patient perspective, did it ever feel, I don't want to say heavy, but like a lot rested on you. It is heavy, but it's lucky Mm -hmm. because like, for instance, when I was going through the thing with my arm, that doctor really bullied me and I felt like I had no voice. And, and so to have a voice now, I felt like I was standing up for people like my own self who didn't have a voice at that, you know, the prior illness. And so I felt like I needed to be, uh, have a stronger voice because I'd already gone through something where I felt so quiet and isolated. So the heaviness was, was not self-inflicted. You know, Mm -hmm. the heaviness sometimes came from other people who maybe were critical, but I had to remember that was their issue, not mine. And so it never felt heavy to me. I always felt like it was lucky. And can you tell us about what it's like being kind of the patient expert, you know, on a news uh, station, you know, what does that really entail? So they would send me articles on, you know, different treatments that were coming out, different drugs that were coming out and different testing, genetic testing that was coming out. And I would have to study that. And then the next morning, the producer would send me like 10 radio stations that were going to interview me that day. And they would all ask specific questions about that study, the one that they had told me to, to research. 
And so that basically was it. They were feeding me the information and I was regurgitating it on their platform. So I think it's probably harder than you make it seem because reading a scientific article is not easy, right? How did you, you know, how did you learn to kind of navigate through some of that language, which is very hard. I think a lot of patients want to do more research, right? And want to read the papers, but they don't entirely know how or where to start. I mean, I'm definitely an overachiever. And so if I can't figure it out, I find a way to figure it out. I mean, that's why I go to Harvard, right? I, (laughs) I had terrible chemo brain. I couldn't remember yesterday. So what do I do? I apply to one of the, you know, an Ivy league school. So I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm normal on any level. (laughs) Fair, fair. I agree. But you know, in terms of like, how does one, you know, become an advocate for themselves. I think that's really what I'm trying to get at, right? Because you're you're talking all, I mean, I love it. I, I try to empower people to advocate for themselves, but I, I think it's harder than it sometimes seems. It's, you know, easier to just say it. So I can speak about this so clearly because I was not an advocate for myself. I allowed, I literally allowed a man to bully the crap out of me so badly that I have a fused permanent disability and I'm in chronic pain. I allowed that from a doctor. I went from that to being a huge voice. Now, how I got here was with a lot of grit, a lot of grace, a lot of people that shored me and cheered me on, but a lot of work on my self-esteem. It's rooted. We have, our courage is rooted in self-esteem. And that's, and I went, and you know, during chemo, you're sick a lot. And there's, I had a lot of people come help me, but you're, you're alone a lot. I mean, I was the one that went to bed with cancer. I woke up the next day with cancer. You know, that was, that was powerful. And during those moments where I was sick on the floor in the bathroom, or I couldn't fall asleep at night, I was working on my self-esteem. I was retraining my voice to not say to myself, you're not worthy. You're not good enough. I was saying to myself, you're worthy. You're good enough. You're going to get through this. And when you get through it, you're going to impact other people. I had no choice because if I kept saying to myself, you're not worthy, I would not, I would never have made it. I had already let somebody do that to me. I was not going to do it again. I think that's a really, really important perspective. And you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, are bullied by medical professionals, I will admit it, or, you know, and maybe that's not the right word, or maybe that it is. But I think a lot of people, sometimes, when you are against the wall in a really tough medical situation, you may feel like there are no options, and you just do what's said to you, right? And I think that happens a lot. Yeah, and I was never a big believer in getting a second opinion, I just trusted the medical field. You know, I, I was always taught to obey authority and doctors are the authority. And so I found a doctor who I trusted with my arm and, and he was not kind to me. And I was, I didn't have a, a good enough self-esteem to push back or to see another opinion. And I should have, but again, I think it goes back to self-esteem and there, there are many, many doctors that are humble and kind and, and want you to see a second opinion because they want you to be comfortable. Right. Mm -hmm. But but there are other doctors that think they're gods and they, and they make you feel like you're inferior. And that's what happened to me. But so I always tell people, go get a second opinion (laughs) now. Yeah, no, I tell people all the time. And, and I think that in it really, and I haven't thought about this until we're just talking about it right now, but you're right. Even 
as a physician, right? Telling someone to get a second opinion. I mean, I think you have to have enough self-esteem yes. in yourself that you are comfortable telling someone that. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I have people that work for me. You know, I, I have an assistant, I have a manager and and I say to them all the time, this has to go both ways. We have to be comfortable working with each other. It's not just me being comfortable working with you. You have to be just as comfortable working with me. It's the same thing. Yeah. Like you as a physician, you, you know, you could say to your patients, go get a second opinion because I want you to be as happy with me as I am, you know, with you as a patient. Well, and, and the doctor patient relationship doesn't work unless both sides are fully in, right? Because if the patient... And I think from, at least from my perspective, the patient doesn't totally trust their team and that happens. Yeah. They, I don't, it's not that they withhold information, but I I think there's things that just don't get communicated as well. Well, it's hard to trust the medical field right now. Right Mm -hmm. now, it's very hard. So let's talk about that. I'm curious. Well, I mean, you are, we are, I mean, I went through 28 rounds of chemotherapy. I had implants put in, I had multiple reconstructions. And then the FDA took the implants that I had off the market because it was causing cancer. Now they knew about that in 2010. I didn't get them until 2016. What happened to me was after that explant exchange where they took them out and put the new ones in, I got an infection. Ultimately, that infection was not diagnosed because it was inside my body. Nobody knew it. Ultimately, that infection turned into a MRSA infection and almost cost me my life. And so had the FDA said, been forthcoming and said, okay, these implants are causing breast cancer or the manufacturer, whomever, then they would have never been put in my body. Mm-hmm. So, that, and that's the second time I had a medical you know, disaster. I'm not the only one that stuff happens to, you know, there's BII, which is breast, breast implant illness. There's that exists. And so a lot of people are going, wait a minute, who's telling us what, and who should we trust? We're supposed to trust the FDA, but a lot of people don't anymore. You know, right. No, I, I get it. I mean, I think that part of it is a lot of these, you know, and I think, so a lot of these things are not new, right. Breast implant illness is not new but we're talking about it more. And so I think what's happening is, and I I think this is where social media is really helpful because as a patient, you may be feeling, you know, people who after their implants will say, just, I've never felt right. You know, I I don't feel good. And, and so now, you know, they may have felt alone, but now if they go on social media and they see other people talking about it, you know, but I, and then you hear about it and then you go, wait a minute, but this wasn't really brought up to me. Right. So it does create a level, I think of distrust, hesitancy and distrust. And it's, and it's hard. And I I think, and one of the reasons that I think more doctors should be on social media is that's where patients are. So you've got to go where the patients are. I mean, I have learned so much just from listening, right. Good for you. What people are sharing and kind of I, I didn't really know about breast implant illness, to be honest, unless right. I, until I started p- seeing people post about it and I was like, oh, right. well, yeah. that makes sense, you know, because we've been attributing their symptoms to tamoxifen, but maybe it's actually right. not tamoxifen. Interesting. Uh, so I, I think that there is a lot that doctors don't know and can learn from patients because you live in that experience, right? We can just tell you, well, these are side effects, but we don't live it. 
Yeah. Good point. Yeah. I love that. Well, good for you for what you're doing for sure. So talk about, you know, kind of done with chemo. I want to kind of talk about your chemo brain and what spurred, like, what was it like really like, and what made you finally make the push to say, okay, I'm going to go back to school. What it was really like was frightening. It was uncertainty. It was insecurity. It was anxiety because I literally would drive down the street. And if there was not a car driving, I wouldn't remember what side of the street to drive on. And so I'd have to pull my car to the side until a car, I could see a car driving. And that wasn't all the time, but I couldn't depend on my own brain. And so that created all this anxiety and all this uncertainty. So what do you do? You don't go out. You don't go drive your car. You don't go pick up your kids. You make all these decisions based on chemo brain and the fogginess. And, and I just knew that I didn't want to live in that anxiety, that uncertainty and that fear. And so, and I was doing crossword puzzles and I'm not saying that those don't work for me. They weren't having a big enough impact. And because I had written a book, because I was planning on becoming a, a writer, I wanted to learn more about writing. And so I, and I, and I had rebuilt my life on a better self-esteem. And so, and I wasn't afraid of rejection. That's also a self-esteem, you know, self-love. Um, and so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to apply to Harvard. And if they say, no, it's okay. Again, I wasn't so med- I wasn't meditating so much on the outcome. I was just meditating on the process. And so they admit, they said, fine, they take me and they admitted me. And I've been in their master's program for a year and a half and I have a year and a half left. And I can't tell you how different my cognitive brain is. My short-term memory has changed dramatically. I'm able to read these things that, you know, Fox or whomever sends me and understand it way clearer. I'm able to write differently. And so it's helped me tremendously. I'm not saying you have to go out and get a master's degree from anywhere, but reading, going back to doing a community school and doing some sort of learning on a week to week basis really helps a lot. So it's really that kind of immense immersion into, uh, because a lot of people, you know, will tell me that they have trouble focusing while they're reading, right? They have trouble focusing on the words. And so it's easy then not to do it because it doesn't feel good to you. It, you know what, listen, it doesn't, it's very hard and it takes a lot of practice and you can do the audio books that helps too. But unless you sit there and do the work, it's the same. I know I keep going back to self-esteem. It's the same thing. Self-esteem work isn't fun. It's very hard and it's a daily practice. But if I decide one day I'm not going to do work on my self-esteem, then I know that I'm going to go backwards and I'm not willing to do that. So I'm going to put the time and the effort into it. It's like, it's like going to work out at the gym. If you don't work out at the gym, you, you're, you're going to see the side effects, right? Yeah. You got to do that with your chemo brain. And it's a bummer, right? We didn't want this. Some, some doctors dismiss it and say it doesn't exist. Oh no, it, 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 it exists. I know I want to wring their neck. Like, I'm like, really? Like how bad would their patient feel if they come in and say, I have this thing called chemo brain and I, I'm foggy. And this doctor says to them, there's no such thing. Talk yes. about dismissal and emotional abuse. That's horrible. That happens though. It, it does. It does happen. Um, and I, you know, I think part of the reason that these things happen and there's no excuse for them is that you know, when someone has a low blood count, right? We're like, well, it's anemia and it's this right. level and this is what we do for it. 
chemo brain, there's, I mean, there are things that we can do, but they're not, they're, they're very subjective, right? It's not a tangible definition that you know how to work with. And I think in general, when people are uncomfortable, we tend to be dismissive of things as a society. I agree. Um, and so, yeah. but it's not fair to patients. Um, and chemo brain is, is very, very real. And the hard part, I think, is that there's no way to predict if you'll have have it or have a mild case or have a very severe case of it. And that's very, very challenging. Yes, I agree. Well, and a lot of time in the medical space, you want to take, give a pill like, or just take this. Yeah. And then with chemo brain, you can't do that. Well, there's, and there's really nothing. And more and more, we're finding out some of the other drugs that we give for breast cancer, like hormone blockers also can exacerbate the cognitive dysfunction. So now you have this on top of the chemo brain and it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Has your speaking changed since your diagnosis? You know, I know you talk about self-esteem, and but ha- did it change, you know, as a result of your diagnosis or do you ta- use your breast cancer kind of to model some of the, the talks that you give? Yeah, I talk a lot about, about self-esteem. I mean, I talk in a, such a wide range of people. I talk in prisons. I talk, you know, and I talk to prisoners about hope in general, you know? Mm-hmm. I talk about my breast cancer journey. I talk about my book. Some people hire me to talk about my story because they've read my book or they want to buy my book for the audience. I talked to, you know, last week I did a talk for Deutsche Bank and the women's organization there. And I talked to women of Wall Street a couple of weeks ago. And so it's, it's always, you know, part of the talk, usually breast cancer comes into it. And it's usually the transformation between who I was back when, and then the illnesses and then who I am now, because it's such a difference in the person, right? Because I'd built my life on all these idols, like, like I said, materialism and external accolades. You know, I was a model, I was an international model. So, you know, getting an, another a new modeling job or a bigger modeling job that kind of filled me up temporarily, but it was so fleeting. It never really worked for very long. And so then I tried to get another, you know, bigger modeling job. And And when you're diagnosed with cancer and you lose your hair, and for me, I lost what I thought was my value, which was external, I had to really look inside and go, wait, who am I? And what am I now without all that other stuff? And I realized, you know, through a lot of work and a lot of dark days that I was more than, you know, being a guest model. And I wanted to do more with my life. And and so I set out to do that. I can see how, you know, when you're speaking to all these different groups of people and populations, I mean, that, that comes, that hope, that transformation really, really comes across. Yeah. Thank you. I hope so. And, and oftentimes I do like a visual, like a slideshow. Mm-hmm. And if you see me as a guest model, and then you see me with 90 pounds and no hair and no eyelashes and no eyebrows. And then you see me now it's, it's powerful, you know, cause people look at me now and they're like, you know, you don't, you don't look sick or you didn't, you know, you didn't, you don't look like you ever had cancer. People say that a lot. And I'm like, okay, get out my phone. And I show yeah. a picture, you know, and, 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 and I would love for somebody to look at my insights because they're a mess. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with that, I'll have, I have two more questions to ask you. So one, what would you say to someone who is newly diagnosed and really feeling that despair and that grief? You know, and we tell them you're going to be okay, but I realize that in the moment it doesn't, it never feels okay. Yeah, it's a heavy burden. It's a, unfortunately, it's a heavy burden, but you know, your focus is the most important thing. 
So if you focus on hopelessness, you will feel hopeless. If you focus on, you know, faith and, and hope (laughs) instead of helplessness, then, you know, that will come through and that will help you. That will serve you. You know, I, I meditated a lot on fear in the beginning and I didn't want to not raise my kids. And I thought a lot about, well, who, if I die, who's going to have the privilege of raising my children? The more I thought about that, the more despair I felt. And so when I stopped that and started to fixate on, no, I'm going to get through this. And and even though I didn't know just the positivity in my own head, you know, it got, it, it helped me each and every day to get to the next day. I love that. And what is filling you up right now? I mean, I love to do this stuff. I love to share my story. I Harvard, I love to, I I really do enjoy learning and I never enjoyed learning as much as I do now, but I'm, you know, I'm 51 and I'm taking my time and enjoying the process. And I'm also on the board of these two nonprofits, which I love. E-Beauty is such a Mm -hmm. incredible organization for, it's a free wig exchange program. I wish everybody in the breast cancer world knew about it because we have so many wigs to give away. Now, do you have to, if you're newly diagnosed, can you take advantage of that? Or do you, is yeah. it like, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. Yeah, just go to ebeauty.com and you can pick the style, the cut, the color. We've partnered with L'Oreal who gives us grant money. And we've partnered with Paul Mitchell Salons who washes and styles our wigs. And then we ship them out and it's it's a free service. So it costs you nothing. And it's it's great because wigs are expensive. I wish, I wish more people knew about this because wigs are really expensive. Um, and on top of all the other things yes. you have to do and pay for, I mean, and some insurances cover wigs, but not often or not a big amount. Um, yes. and so that's, that's amazing. Great. Okay. Well, yes. Put it on this podcast. And I some- absolutely. Well, yeah, <laughs> that is a, that's a huge, huge, I'm actually doing a whole thing on hair now. So I'm going to add it. Okay, that. perfect. Um, no, it's it's amazing. And it's yeah, like I said, and it makes I mean for me, my kids wanted me to look like their mom. And so when I was walking around with a little cap on my head because that was comfortable for me and I didn't have a wig, it wasn't comfortable for my kids. They wanted me to see, they wanted to see me with a blonde wig. Yeah. So it helps in other ways as well. That's amazing. No, thank you. I'm so glad. Yeah. There's so many amazing organizations that people just don't know about. And there has to be a way to get the word out to like, because it's online. Right. But if, I mean, doctors are like, you're in a bubble and you don't know about all the stuff that's online. That's right. Yeah. And patients don't either. So exactly. Um, And if listeners want to find you online, read your book, how can they do all of that? So my book is called walk beside me by Christine handy and online. You can go to my website, christinehandy.com on Instagram. I think that's where we met. Yes. It's Christine handy one. I'm, you know, you can Google me. I'm all over the place. So, but reach out to me. I love to talk. I mentor breast cancer patients. I mentor prisoners. I've got a couple young kids at FIU that I mentor these young, um, college kids. So I do love helping other people. It's a gift. It, it is. Thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. Thank you all for listening to my conversation with Christine. It was an incredible and powerful one. I think in her experiences and how she shaped her narrative through self-esteem and bravery and letting go of 
her pride and her ego, practicing asking for help, trying to really meditate on faith and courage and hope rather than fixating on the outcome. I think these are such powerful messages that help anyone, especially those going through a hard time as so many are right now. My favorite, favorite quote from this episode was when Christine said, we can choose the direction we are going in every single day. And I hope that by by listening to this conversation, you found it empowering as I definitely did. The grit and the grace that she has shown and practices and teaches, I think is, is, is really amazing. You can find Christine on Instagram at christinehandy1. Her book is called Walk Beside Me. And I'm going to put put a plug in for eBeauty. As Christine mentioned uh, during this conversation, eBeauty is a nonprofit organization that supports women going through cancer treatment. And one of their amazing resources is their free wig exchange program. Wigs are expensive. And I think, you know, we know that that can be a financial hardship for so many, especially when they are faced with all of the other costs of cancer treatment. And this is a incredible resource that I urge you to take advantage of. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Dr. Toplinski. If you enjoyed this episode or any others of the podcast, I would be honored if you could leave a rating and review over an Apple podcast, as that again helps me grow the show and bring it to new listeners. Thank you all again for listening, and I will see you soon. 